Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I want to welcome you to our fourth uh, episode in this sort of mini-series for applicants in neurosurgery residency programs. We've already had some wonderful guests, and today we have on a guest we've been trying to get on for some months now. We have uh, Jay Mako. Jay and I were the same year coming out of uh, medical school, but Jay is the program director at Mount Sinai in New York City, and he's done so many wonderful things in endovascular. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be able to make it. Glad we were able to make it work. So, Jay, we got to have you back on to talk about all things endovascular, but today we really want to focus on a very, very interesting and mysterious topic for, for many applicants. And what that has to do with is this issue of, so you've gone through your application being sent in, you've gone through your interview cycle, and all these attendings sit in these ivory towers, and you're, you're a program director, right? I have been. I, I actually just about two weeks ago handed over the uh, the the baton to to uh, my partner, Dr. Shivastava. But um, it's been I've been involved in the program process, whether as a medical student director, as associate program director, and as a program director for over five years now. Okay, perfect. So you can speak with it just like Jeff Bruce did without bias because you're no longer the program director, but you have immense experience. So why don't you first just give an intro of yourself and, and all the places you've been and what you've done in terms of academic neurosurgery uh, and residency programs? Sure. Uh, happy to do so. I, I think hopefully I bring uh, some worthwhile um, and different points of view. Uh, my career's taken me on a bit of a, a circuitous route uh, where I've gotten to evaluate and be part of and also see how different programs work uh, at a number of different uh, very respected and uh, outstanding neurosurgery programs. I did my initial training at Columbia, uh, where actually I had Jeff Bruce, who you just mentioned, as my program director. I also got to see the program directorship change while I was there, Dr. Don Quest, a uh, real legend of the field, uh, director, uh, president of AANS, and, and just all around amazing human being, uh, was my program director for the first part of my residency and then transitioned uh, to Dr. Jeff Bruce. Um, and that was fantastic because I got to see two excellent program directors uh, have their experience in different directions. And since I was always very interested in neurosurgical education, um, they were really wonderful in allowing me to engage in the process and uh, participate in the process in a way that I think was a bit more than the typical resident and gave me some great insights. Uh, I then took my first faculty job at University of Florida, where as the director of the medical student, um, you know, me medical student director at, at University of Florida. Um, that was a great experience as well. Again, I saw a transition of program directors while there from Dick Lister, who is a uh, really gentleman of the field, uh, to Brian Ho, um, who was a program director there uh, at that time. Um, and so that was a likewise great experience. And then from then, I went and became director of the supervascular program at Vanderbilt, um, where I became associate program director and uh, spent three years as associate program director there. 
uh, really um, embraced and engaged in, in the system and process, another excellent program that had its own unique ways of evaluating, pa- uh, evaluating patients, excuse me, evaluating program applicants. Um, and then lastly, most recently, uh, six years ago, I came to Mount Sinai, um, where I uh, assumed the d- program director uh, status, uh, which I've done for almost the, the full past six years. And uh, I just transitioned uh, the program directorship to Dr. Raj Srivastava. So hopefully I'll be able to help your listeners and provide some uh, unique insights as someone who's seen a lot of different program directors and a lot of different programs um, work through this entire process. That's great. That's great. So Jake, help us with just sort of the preliminary. So after the applicants have gone through this interview process, tell us about like which, well, maybe even before then, tell us about how you assess them and how you put it together so you get up with the, with the rank list in your group at Mount Sinai, for example. Sure. Well, every place has its own version of, of this process. But what is pretty consistent for most places is the applicants come and they do their interviews. Um, and at the end of that day, usually... Um, there will be a meeting of the faculty to sort of briefly discuss any important or relevant issues. It's usually not particularly in-depth. They just quickly touch base across the, the applicants and give an idea of their general opinion. Um, this will often lead to sort of some general uh, grouping uh, of the applicants. Hey, these are the individuals that really blew us away. These are the individuals that seemed really interesting. Maybe we're not entirely sure of, or they have a high risk, high reward profile or something like that. And then, Hey, here are the individuals that the fit wasn't right. We're just a different kind of place. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's, this wouldn't be the place for them. Um, and so that, that's a very, very informal, very loose sort of, um, immediate assessment, first impression sort of thing. Um, and then, then programs do some different things to get, you know, further clarity of that. Uh, sometimes applicants choose to come back for second looks when they do that. It gives, you know, sometimes it has uh, really positive effects. Sometimes it has negative effects, to be honest. Um, it, it's, but it shouldn't be seen as negative. It's, it's really about just getting the program and the applicant a chance to get a true sense of who each other are and, and decide if it's a good fit. Um, and then programs typically set up one day or two days or, or more. I remember when I was at Mandy, we had two separate days. Uh, subsequently, um, you know, different programs have slightly different things. Uh, if I remember right at Columbia 20 years ago, we had one uh, subsequent meeting. But programs will, will get back together. They'll assess what information they've gotten over that time, Sometimes program directors or, or other faculty will reach out to colleagues that they have. Uh, let's say someone came by for their interview and they made, a, they made a, a, a very strong impression, but there was something unusual in their application or, or one of the interviewer, in one of the interviews, they said something that was, that was disconcerting to, to the interviewer. Um, and so oftentimes what will happen then is, is the program will reach out to the home program. Uh, to people they know and say, hey, you know, what do you think about um, this this person? Are, are they are, are they as great as they seem or, you know, is there a red flag here that we're missing or so forth and so on? Um, so there's, there's that kind of process uh, ongoing in general, second looks, reaching out to home programs, general conversations, you know, uh, 
applicants have gotten incredibly, um, I don't know what the right word is, maybe professional nowadays. They're very uh, astute. They send follow-up, you know, thank you emails or or even letters or cards sometimes and, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. So all that, you know, semi-subjective um, data comes in and everyone takes it into account. And then usually there's, like I said, one or two big group meetings where uh, the program gets listed. I think actually Mount Sinai, I think last year we ended up having three of these meetings um, because we had, it was just such an amazing group of applicants and a lot of faculty who, who were passionate about particular individuals. And, and we want to make sure that we're, we're really giving everyone a complete and thorough fair shake. Um, But over the course of those one, two or three meetings, the faculty uh, it's, it's, Typically not all the faculty, but it's typically most of them. It's the ones that are interested in the residency that care about the teaching. Um, the faculty all get together and they they sort of discuss the, the, the applicants. There's usually a soft list made that's based off of those initial first impression meetings that we talked about earlier. And then everyone goes down that list and says, hey, should this person be higher or lower? And then they go to the next person. Should this person be higher or lower? And and really move them around and, and order them in, in ways that seem meaningful. Um, that's that's most of a, of a you know, 30,000 foot view of how the sausage gets made. Well, Dr. Well, Dr. Dr. I, I wonder with that list that you mentioned, how much change is there really among it? I, I suppose at least at the end, you know, as we all know in life, deals are often made on a handshake and a romance can be settled or, or lost on a first date. So after you've met these folks, and especially this year among all years, how much in your experience have you seen people significantly shift on rank lists? And let's say this year in particular, you talk about all these follow-up emails and you know there's no second looks, but what steps could you advise applicants this year to take to reach out after the interview day and in some way impact their spot on a rank list for a program they're really interested in, but maybe can't make that extra mile uh, step of, of making a second look visit. In what ways can they compensate this year to really drive home their interest in a program and try to affect their ranking? Ooh, that's Those are great questions. Um, I think that there's a, there's a, there were a couple questions embedded in there, so I'll try to hit, hit, hit them. If I, hopefully I remember them all. Feel free to re-ask if I forget. But the first is how much do people really change in those last couple meetings? And the reality is, is often quite a lot. Um, yes. Uh, uh, you know, lifelong romances can be sparked or lost on a, on a first date and a first impression and jobs can be won or lost in an interview. That's as of now, the way of the world. Um, uh, but, but there's so much more that goes into it in terms of, how a person comports himself, how they engage, how they follow up. And I'll come back to that. That was your second question. Um, how they possibly did a second look. Also the program evolves and changes. Things change as you, you know, I tell medical students that are looking at programs, if you're paying attention to, you know, what exactly is the call schedule or when do they rotate at this place and when do they rotate at that? Or do they do, you know, functional earlier late in the residency or vascular earlier late in the residency? I tell them that that's all the wrong stuff to pay attention to because the one thing that you can be guaranteed, and I've seen it at many places over many times, and I challenge them to ask any 
any resident at any place you're interviewing, if that residency is the same when they're chief as it was when they were applying? And the answer is no, because things happen. Life changes, right? There are new rules from, from the RRC or, or ABNS or new rules from GME or ACGME about work details or things. Um, faculty change, uh, medicine change, neurosurgery changes, new procedures develop, new old procedures go away. So all of these things are, are beyond your control. What you need to focus on is what is the, what is the vibe? What is the energy? What's the, what's the feeling? And as long as the, you know, really, as long as the chair, the leadership team is intact, that, that central kind of, um, uh, soul of the program stays the same, although a lot of those details will shift around it. And so I, I mentioned that just to say that those details shift. And it may be that a program, for whatever reason, decides, you know, you interview people in, in November and December, maybe January, you're making your list two months later, you know, maybe there's someone that you interviewed in, in November that by the time February comes around, the needs of the program have shifted. And, you know, although they were looking to, to get, you know, more clinically minded uh, applicants, you know, they really, they've, they've got a new recruit who's, who's building a fantastic basic science team and they, they're interested in, in seeing if they can get some applicants that are really interested in basic science. Like it, it, there's no right or wrong. The applicants are never right or wrong. And frankly, the programs aren't right or wrong, right? This is just like falling in love or, or, or being in a marriage or a relationship, um, it's not right or wrong. It's about fit. It's about what makes sense. And, and certainly applicants should never take away any negativity from whether they're the right fit for a program or not, even if they think they are. Um, I will tell you that it's my experience most of the time when the applicant thinks they're a good fit, the program thinks they're a good fit too, because they, you know, they, they found each other. <laughs> they, they, it makes sense. Um, and so those are all good things. You know, also sometimes programs want to challenge what their normal fit is. They say, hey, we always seem to get this same type of applicant. We really want to be a, a different program. We want to evolve as a program. Maybe not completely different, but a little different. We want that diversity of, of experience or interest or, or whatever else. Um, and so these are all things that go into that process. And so, yes, people can change in their position on the rank list. They can, you know, from when they were first, that first uh, impression look in, in November to when the final list is submitted in whenever it is, the end of February or early March, um, there may be, that you know, there may be real changes there. Uh, and that should not be a depressing fact. It should be a good fact. It should be a positive fact. It should, should show that, that everyone's working really hard to get this right on both sides of the equation. And, uh, and I think that's a real win. And so then your second part of your question was, well, great, but if they can't do sub eyes, particularly this year, what, what is a, or second looks, what's a applicant to do? And I'm glad you asked me that because it'll give me a chance to address one thing, which is what they shouldn't do is they shouldn't send blanket enthusiastic emails to all of the program directors on their list repeatedly. Um, it, it doesn't really do anything. Um, I can tell you as a program director, you get inundated with emails from applicants saying how interested they are in their program, but it's, it's pretty clear in the email that there's, it's not particularly um, specific or sincere. 
Um, now everyone's going to go in and put one specific detail in, but even those come across uh, as not really being the real thing. I don't think you're necessarily doing yourself a favor with that kind of that kind of correspondence. You know, a simple thank you for the interview or whatever else. That's great. I think it shows that you're polite and you're thoughtful. Um, but overselling yourself in the context of um, your interest in a place and, and and doing it in a way that you're doing to four or five or six other places, I think, um, I don't know if it's detrimental, but it's definitely not helpful. Uh, and so what I would encourage those applicants to do is to take a very serious look at their own list. And I have a whole different <clears throat> theory about how applicants, the way I advise our medical students and things, what they could do to help them with that process in terms of their thought process. But ultimately they need to take a hard look at what they want, not chase a program, not chase a title, say, what am I looking for, for my career and what programs are going to give me that. And then for, for the one or two, maybe three, certainly not more um, programs that, that really fit them and that they really want to go to, uh, they, then they should be very sincere and open about that. They should say, look, I've narrowed my choices to two programs. You're one of them. I'm not sending this email to anyone else. This, this is why I'm interested. This is why I think I'm a good fit. I really hope you consider me. I'd love to come. And I, I think that is, is something you could definitely do as an applicant that would help yourself and, um, and, and get you where you need to be. So I would highly recommend that. Jay, I love your message of positivity, and, and I would just reiterate to our listeners that, that one of the great things about American neurosurgery is that there are almost no bad programs. I think I can say that there's almost no bad programs. There's certainly programs that seem a little stronger in one area than another, uh, maybe a better city, maybe more operative experience, maybe better research, but um, no real bad programs. So let me ask you a question along the lines of what you brought up about interested faculty and all this. How much say does... I mean, you've been to four places, right? To say the department chairman versus the program director versus, uh, you know, the the administrator of the program, like Kathy Guzman or Ingrid Menendez here in Miami. How much weight do they carry? How much weight do the residents carry? How how is the process carried out? Is it democratic? Is it uh, is it is it like an oligarchy of decision? Like, give us a little insight, because it it does strike me as a bit of a mystery when you're an applicant. Well. You know, one of my mentors said to me once, when you've seen one academic medical center, you've seen one academic medical center <laughs> because they're all a little unique. You know, there's no seen one, seen them all kind of thing. Um, and, and I think that the, the things you just touched on are, are pretty true. Um, so there are places that have uh, completely sort of egalitarian ranking system where uh, every faculty gives someone a score and those scores get averaged and they create a, 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 a you know score matrix list and that's it and and that's it that's it it just stays that way there are other places where all the faculty sort of give their opinions there's never any real official list made and then uh, the um, faculty, the, the the faculty sort of walk, leave the room, and and the chairman and the program director uh, make up the list based on that, or maybe even just the chairman. Um, so it's really variable. There are places where the admin, um, you know, the the program coordinator has tremendous influence. Um, 
and 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 carries a lot and that's usually because that person's earned it they've been around for a long time they're very bright they know the system they know the people i will say although different programs have different influence from the program coordinators in terms of you know potentially influencing actual list what is certain is if there's one way to mess things up is be rude to a program coordinator or or don't because i as far as i know every program i've been the program coordinator definitely has a uh, a veto right to um i mean it's not that overt it's not like they actually veto but if they share with the faculty hey this person is really difficult to deal with and and not polite and or doesn't follow up and whatever else uh that definitely weighs very seriously on on the faculty's thoughts so, Mike, I wish I could give you a clear answer. I think it is very different for each place. Um, and I think that's good. You need that variety. Well, Dr. Mako, as this episode draws to a close, I wonder if you can cast your mind back to when you were in the position of these applicants. It's, it's much closer for me at, at my age and stage in my career. And trying to think back about the things I wish I knew when I was applying um, which is a, perhaps a trite question, and I'm sure many of those points you've already covered. But when I try to imagine myself as an applicant this year with the added frustrations and the added um, worry and, and concern about how to get a sense of that fit and how to get a sense of that potential camaraderie with a group for, with whom you'll be spending so many years of your life, I wonder if as we close, you can talk briefly about um, at least there at Mount Sinai in your current program, how not in terms of the process and the mechanics, but in terms of the, the thinking and among the discussion with you and the other faculty, um, in terms of your evaluation of the students this year, how you think it might be different, um, the, the obvious ways that it will suffer, but some factors uh, where you, you may try to counteract the, the loss of direct contact and extended contact on the interview trail this year. Yeah. I mean, this is in some ways, even for every year, this is part and parcel with neurosurgery. Uh, you're often making a decision about why, where you're going to move to, where you're going to live and the people you're going to spend the vast majority of your time with for the next seven years. Um, and who will set the trajectory of your career based on, you know, a one day interview. I mean, back it, it, you said it correctly that it's been a while since I did this. Back in my day, we didn't really do second looks, or at least I didn't. It wasn't something that was on the radar. I often tease uh, one of my good friends, uh, Bill Mack, who was the year behind me in in applying. And um, he, I remember him saying that he was going on a second look somewhere. And I, and I was I'm like, what is that? You go twice? And uh, so I, from now on, I say he invented the second look. But I, I think that... Um, it, it's we, we make these decisions and, and some things in life are, are a little happenstance. But I think the same advice goes for back then as it does now, which is you've got to find, you do your best to focus on the, the fit components, on, on where your heart is, where your passion is, where your gut is on these decisions. Um, it is so easy to chase um, concepts of reputation, which are extremely backward looking. I mean, you guys all, all know this, it, you know, so, someone their you know, a program's reputation is based on the prior 20 years, not the upcoming five. 
um, or or concepts of uh, you know preconceived notions of of who knows what it is, science or clinical skill or whatever else. I, I don't. You're gonna, as Mike said, you're gonna get great training wherever you go, um, and it, particularly in a year like this, uh, I think you have to pay even more attention to that. You have to, you know, during the interview day, talk to the residents. Get a sense of them, get a sense of their vibe, get a sense of how much they believe in their program and how passionate they are about their program's leadership. Because I, I think that when it's all said and done, that's the most important thing. And because there's even less of it than there normally is this year, it's more important to weight it as best you can. You know, could you be mistaken? Possibly. But I would seek out those kinds of engagements. I would try to have meaningful, real conversations with the faculty when you're interviewing. You know, sometimes applicants, they, they it's like you ask them a question and it's like hitting a play button on a recorder and they just go through this, what is clearly a rehearsed spiel that may or may not even, even address your question. Those kinds of responses, that's not what you want now. You want to get into real conversations and feel like you get to know these people. I, that would be my recommendation. Get to the heart of it. Well, that's sage advice, as you say, not only this year, but in all years. And in fact, uh, most human interactions, I'd say. Um, well, Dr. Mako, to respect your time above all, uh, we want to bring this episode to a close. But thank you so much on behalf of myself and Dr. Wang. And importantly, all of the folks listening, especially those on the interview trail, for whom I'm sure this will be very valuable advice and insights into the uh, attending and faculty side of things and constructing your rank list. Um, thank you for sharing your, as we said, vast experience in this realm. And of course, we are going to have to have you back on to put on your normal professional hat and talk about the endovascular world. But for now, thank you so much for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast. You got it. Thank you both for having me. I appreciate it.